0: Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land is about Huda Shaarawi, pioneering egyptian feminist leader and the founder of the egyptian feminist union when i was writing the record at a certain point i realized i was in danger of only writing about people from europe and the uk and north america and i wanted to make sure that my scope included people from all over the world i was chatting to some of my friends many of whom are also history nerds and an egyptian friend of mine mentioned Huda's name Which wasn't one that I knew, Uh, so I started reading up on her and quickly realised just how important she was to the history of feminism in Egypt and the wider Arab world in general. Huda was born in 1879 and raised in an upper-class Egyptian family. And when she was 13 years old, she was married off to a much older cousin and raised in a harem, which was the segregated women's quarters of the household. Despite all of this, she managed to find a way to educate herself and gain some degree of independence. In the lead up to the First World War, she was active setting up some of the first social services for poor women and children in Cairo, and she led demonstrations against the continued British presence in Egypt after the war had ended. But her most famous moment was in 1923 when she arrived at Cairo Station on a train returning from a feminist conference in Zurich and removed her full face veil in front of a crowd at Cairo Station, which sent a shockwave through the Arab world and was a radical step forward for women's rights in Egypt. She became known towards the end of her life as the lioness, which I used as the title for my song about her. When looking around for somebody to talk to about Huda's life for the podcast, I was amazed to discover that her granddaughter, Sania La LaFranchi, is still alive and is an active feminist in Egypt to this day. So I managed to get her on the phone to discuss the life and work of her famous grandmother.
1: Hello, Frank.
0: Hello. Let me begin, Sonia, by saying that it's a real honour to talk to you today and say thank you very much for taking time out to speak to me about your incredible grandmother.
1: Well, it's an honour for me too. I was wondering what made you write about her and all the other women.
0: Well, I stumbled into writing songs about um, historical female figures. I had like two or three songs that were coming together, and it seemed like it was a it was a theme, you know, it was an idea. Um, and then while I was writing, I realized whilst I was trying to choose a wide range of people to write about, that most of them were people from Western cultures, you know, um, white people essentially. And I wanted to reach out beyond that in terms of my subject matter. And um, I was talking to a lot of my uh, intelligent and historically knowledgeable female friends, and your grandmother's name came up more than once, so I started to read about her and try and learn some some more about her life and her history and the impact of the things that she did.
1: Yeah, well, she did lots of things.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to begin um, talking about what is for me in my ignorance, quite a loaded term, which is the term harem, because as you know, reading about her and her writings and everything talk about her being raised in the harem. Now, that's a word that for me as a, as a Westerner has certain kind of connotations, and I'm not sure that they're correct. So I was wondering if you could explain to me exactly what that means in practice being born in 1870. In Egypt, what it was like to be a woman raised in a harem?
1: Well, the only place where I saw a harem was in Turkey at the Topkapi Museum. There's a whole part of the museum that is consecrated to the harem where women lived. And uh, aside from that, I've never seen one. My, my grandmother grew up in a, an environment mainly of women. And this was considered the harem, the part of the house where the women stayed. The men of the family would go out to sort of an office at the entrance or perhaps another villa where they would stay and uh, talk business or whatever among men. So the women were a bit set apart, if you want to say.
0: Right. And would it all be family members together in the one place?
1: Yeah, usually they, they were in the same house. And when men had something else to do, some kind of business or something, they would move out to sort of an office or a sitting room, exactly like we do now, I guess.
0: Sure, but it was sexually segregated, as it were. And is that true of education as well, I was reading?
1: Yeah, well, education, yes. But that was in the whole world, wasn't it?
0: Oh, very much so, completely. But um, as I understand it, Huda you know, used to steal books from her father and was very keen on education.
1: Yes, she wanted to learn. She was full of curiosity which I suppose is the greatest quality if you want to lead an interesting life, that is. And I think that was one of her main passions, knowledge.
0: But also then to change that society as well. I mean, she lived in a period of history where there were a lot of changes happening in Egypt. You have, you know, the First World War and the revolution in 1919. Do you think that gave her more opportunity to move beyond the world into which she was born?
1: Well, she had already studied quite a bit. She had French ladies who were her friends and they were uh, coaching her and she learned a lot of things. And then during the First World War, I think the women on both sides, south and north, I think this is where the feminist movement began. That Mm -hmm. is in absolute hatred and horror of the war where their sons and husbands and fathers Died, especially the Great War. There was uh, a, a real massacre of uh, young and uh, older men because mm. they went to the front. And uh, the women suffered a lot from that and hated the violence and decided that they had to do something about it. You know, Montaigne said that uh, wars are the proof of our stupidity. So I suppose women thought the same.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Also, earlier in her life, Huda was married. And I was wondering if you could tell me about the nature of that marriage, because she married a cousin who was older than her. And I wonder if you could tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, well, she married her cousin. They didn't stay together for a long time. She was too young for him. He was too old for her. They both suffered from it. They had got married mainly to preserve the family fortune. And so the marriage didn't last and mm. it wasn't a real marriage anyway because he he didn't fancy, he was no pedophile, if you see what I mean, he sure. didn't fancy. And so he spared her the trouble and he went to his first wife and she encouraged him to do so, but she mm. stayed uh, legally married to him. Uh, and so she used the years after this... To study. She stayed with her uh, French Mm. friends, with her Egyptian friends, with anyone who could teach her, who could lead her to books and to reading and to develop knowledge.
0: And at some point, she, I mean, the most famous incident in her life in 1923 at Cairo Station. I think I'm right in saying she was coming back from Switzerland. Is that right?
1: From uh, Rome. From Rome. Yeah, Ah, you see, there was a manifestation against the British occupation because, uh, of course, nobody wanted a protectorate in Egypt and the British were about to impose one. And so she decided that if the women led a walk in the middle of Cairo, this would be noticed all over the world and the British wouldn't kill them because their women and public opinion would resent that. So they did that talk, but they were fully veiled. They had the face veil on. And uh, this manifestation attracted the attention of the women in the West. And this was when the uh, International Alliance for the Suffrage of Women began to send her invitations to go abroad. They held conferences uh, all the time. I mean, once a year anyway. Also, Madame Juliette Adam began to write to her. She was a very famous journalist, a Republican in France, a friend of uh, Victor Hugo and Georges Sand and all those uh, intellectuals mm. and uh, and they made friends
0: i was going to ask about that so who does spoke french i take it she published the magazine L'Egyptienne, am i right in saying
1: yes she published l'egyptien and she also spoke arabic very well and wrote arabic very well and so she had another magazine that was aimed at uh, the women uh, of the Arab world, uh, and that was called al Masreya, the Egyptian woman. Mm-hmm. Many of the articles in L'Egyptian uh, were translated and published on uh, al The Women were increasingly aware of the importance of the media, sure. and so was she, of course.
0: Yes, she was a skillful journalist from what I can see.
1: She could write well and she talked very well. She had a fascinating voice.
0: Is it a voice that you remember at all? Because I know that your lives crossed over briefly.
1: Yeah, well, I was very small. I do remember maybe vaguely her voice. I remember most of all her steadfastness, how she held one and one felt safe in her arms, which was great. And I remember also people's attitudes towards this woman who was carrying me. And they were sort of very respectful and they listened to her. You know, children would be impressed by this kind of thing.
0: That's lovely. I definitely, in this discussion, want to talk more about the things that happened after this. But the 1923 incident at the station is very famous. So she comes back to Cairo on a train.
1: Yeah, she came back by ship. First of all, they sailed back to Alexandria Mm -hmm. And her son-in-law was waiting for her at the port and she asked him what he thought about uh, 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 casting off the veil. There was uh, Cesar Nabarawi with her. Cesar was younger and she was very insistent that they had to do it. My grandmother cared less about the veil than about the occupation. But uh, Cesar was really insistent and so she said, all right, we'll try it. She asked her son-in-law, would you mind very much if I did that? Because her husband was dead by then. Mahmoud Sami, her son-in-law, said, no, I would not mind. Actually, it's become quite necessary to do that. It's exactly as you tell it in the song. She came out of the train, onto the platform, and Nabawiya Musa, who had gone to Rome with them, was back and had prepared the whole mediatic aspect of this whole thing, There was a whole crowd of women standing there waiting to acclaim and waiting for the two of them. When they came out of the train and removed the veil, they had a way of, uh, they removed the face veil and turned it around their heads. And then all the women looked at them in absolute stupor and took off their veils as well. After that... The veil was off for a very long time, you know, until uh, the 70s, I think.
0: Why did it start to come back, do you think?
1: Because uh, we had President Sadat as uh, the Muslim uh, president. And uh, all sorts of clerics began to struggle with ideas about... uh, how you have to be veiled. And, you know, feminism was launched by a man in Egypt. His name was Qasim Amin. And right. the main idea for Qasim Amin was education. The education of women would make the mothers like schools for their children.
0: So in the action of taking off her veil, that's interesting to me because so there was some support from the men of Egypt for this action as well.
1: Ah, yes, absolutely. There was this fabulous generation of men who were the liberal constitutionalists. And uh, many of them uh, were occupied in uh, teaching many of the professors Were men, of course they were men, but they were also sort of writers, philosophers, journalists. And
0: they were supportive of Huda's actions of feminism? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Some of them had been calling for that.
0: But was there much opposition from within Egyptian society for this action?
1: Not a bit. The point is, people thought the world of her. It was easy for her to do it, and the country was ready for it, and that was it.
0: So from my reading, I was seeing that a lot of the legislation that she was pushing for in her lifetime about age of marriages and education for women and this kind of thing, a lot of them didn't actually come to fruition in her lifetime because she dies in 1947, right?
1: It's only suffrage that she couldn't get immediately. I see. She wouldn't have anything to do with uh, inheritance laws because you know that uh, men inherit double what women inherit. Right. But on the other hand, by Egyptian law, by Sharia law, women are in full control of their possessions, of whether hmm. it be money or anything else. They are the ones who are supposed to decide what to do with it.
0: There's an interesting point in there for me. I hope you'll excuse and forgive my ignorance on this topic. But it's interesting to me. So Huda was a practicing Muslim. She was interested in the content of, I think I'm right in saying, jihad as the kind of struggle for equality, but very much rooted in uh, Islam and in uh, Muslim ideas and this kind of thing. And obviously nowadays in the modern world, there are some people, I do not include myself among them, who have kind of ideas about uh, the role of women within Islam. And Huda seems to me to be somebody who punctures that idea in an interesting way.
1: Yes, well, jihad, I mean, the great jihad in Islam is supposed to be internal. It's fighting against your own uh, drives and your own murderous instincts and Mm. your own defects anyway. So it's an inner struggle. This is what the real jihad is supposed to be. As to the, the other jihad, which is the smaller jihad, Uh, undertaken in wars well wars happen everywhere unfortunately what can you do Uh, and they are proof of man's stupidity aren't they
0: (laughs) Very much so. Very much so. I find it really sort of um, interesting and inspiring that Huda was a, a Muslim woman who was also a feminist, and that's a necessary corrective to some of the stereotypes and narratives that we live with today. Within that, I'm also interested in sort of the role that you see for Huda's reputation and the impact of her actions after her death, particularly in recent years, and let's say in the Arab Spring and things like this. Is, is Huda's reputation still relevant in Egyptian politics and indeed broader Arab and Muslim politics today?
1: Yeah, well, she was uh, remembered because much of history had been forgotten, you see. Mm. In uh, the early days of the 1952 revolution, there were big changes and large chunks of history were left out and people forgot and... Well, I suppose life was complicated, and this. Well, yes,
0: I think I've seen photographs of demonstrators uh, in Tahrir Square and places carrying pictures of Huda.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: And so, do you think that she has a that her voice and her writings and her actions have an important role to play in in current developments within Egyptian society?
1: Yes, you know, uh, "Casting of the Veil" has been translated by me into French, "La chute du voile," an Italian one that my daughter uh, did and it's entitled Avolto Scoperto. Then there's this Arabic version that just came out, Wakashafatwagaha, this is how it's entitled. It's being read, and I must say that many people are really enthusiastic, perhaps even more men than women. One of them is a great writer. here. He's written a wonderful article about it. There were movies uh, made about her life. And she's back on stage, Broadway, isn't she?
0: Yeah, well, so do you see your role as a writer now in writing the book about your grandmother as continuing her work and continuing to spread her ideas?
1: Yeah, well, this is what uh, my elder sister, who unfortunately is no more now, uh, she said to me when I was very young, she said, you can write, you're going to write her biography because I can't write, and so you're the one who's going to do it. And And, so I had to live with this burden... (laughs) all my life. And then it, uh, it caught up with me and I began to travel absolutely travel to go on her tracks and find things out about her from the other side. You know, I went to Juliette Dance Property, Dame Marjorie, Corbett Ashby. I don't know, you name it.
0: I sort of have a a two part question here. The 1923 veil thing, it shouldn't be the only thing that she's remembered for. It shouldn't be the defining event of her career. Is that fair?
1: It's one of the defining events, but there are many.
0: Why do you think that that particular incident is remembered so much?
1: Well, it's clamorous, but the march in the middle of Cairo, the veiled women's march, Mm. was quite clamorous as well. It's also remembered.
0: Yeah, she was, as I understand, she was standing in the full heat of the middle of a car a day, facing down the soldiers for some time.
1: That was uh, Lord Russell's fault. I mean, <laughs> he stopped them. He had them cordoned into a sort of small precinct, and he mm-hmm. said he would leave the poor deers there to suffer. And then when he was uh, tired of making them suffer, he just told them to go home. Quite a cad, I would say.
0: Yes, well, a colonial occupier. Yeah. What do you think that gets forgotten about her? What are the things about her that don't get talked about enough, and possibly outside of politics, you know, her as an individual, as a person?
1: Well, as an individual, as a person, she was very much loved by everyone who surrounded her, especially the women who worked with her, but also the men. I have seen some pictures of her with... uh, uh, people like Ahmad Lotfi Said, who was uh, the philosopher, president of the University of Cairo. He was so affectionate with her. It was his expression, his uh, body language. There was a lot of affection around her. I'm very interested in the title of your song, The Lioness. You know, mm. there's an, uh, an ancient Egyptian lioness who was a goddess called Sekhmet. I did not she, know that. And, and uh, she protected uh, the pharaoh. Sekhmet was, uh, I mean, they all invoked her for protection, for safety, for a motherly figure. She could uh, sort of uh, communicate very well. She networked uh, like anything. She was surrounded by young people. She delegated um, tasks very easily.
0: Do you approve of the title, of The Lioness, for the
2: song? Oh,
1: Yes, I love it. I think of Sekhmet and I think it's, uh, I love it. And then I love, of course, the main tune. She's not going to hide her face anymore. She isn't going to know her place anymore. This is really catchy. I'm well, sure thank everyone's you. going to sing this in the streets very
0: soon. I, I, I certainly hope so. I wanted to write the song about her and to celebrate her and her life and her achievements. Um, almost in a way, you know, in the action of writing a song, one simplifies, one draws out things that are good for a chorus or whatever. Part of the reason I want to make this podcast and talk to you about Huda and all the rest of it is to make sure that I'm not just kind of presenting a one-dimensional version of the person that we're talking about.
1: No, I think it's actually miraculous. Those two lines... Uh, that she's not going to hide her face anymore. you got to face the veil into it. I mean, the casting Mm. of the veil. And uh, the other part is about uh, her later life, everything she did, because she really didn't know her place anymore. And, you know, while I, I carried out this research, I went to so many places and i saw so many people uh, and she was doing so many things and inventing this and inventing that and i said oh grandma please for god's sake stop it i'm getting tired
0: (laughs) but that's a i mean that's a wonderful thing to encounter a full life you know
1: oh yes it is definitely Uh, She died like she lived, you know. She died because of the division of Palestine. She had uh, a massive heart failure at that point, and she died from it. She was horrified. She thought uh, Palestine should not be divided. It should stay whole, and uh, uh, it would be better for peace, uh, and she thought a lot in terms of kindness. You've got that title for another song, Be More yeah. Kind. Yeah. And I feel, uh, yeah, you probably have things in common then, at least <laughs> in your heart. Well.
0: <laughs> I, I, I would be flattered by, by, by that statement and, and hope it to be true. Um, again, forgive my ignorance asking this question because I've never been to Egypt and I'm sorry that I didn't make it to Cairo for this podcast. Um, do women wear the veil in Egypt now? I mean, or the majority? Or-
1: well, uh, some of them have the few, very few people now after the year of Muslim Brotherhood presidency uh, and their defeat. Now they are removing the face veil, but they keep right. a little scarf on their heads, and I think it's a way of. Uh, they think the Quran said you have to cover her heads, which I think is not true, because the Quran just took it for granted that Bedouin women had their heads covered.
3: So that's <laughs> okay. one
1: thing. But they, and, I d- think, d- they feel actually feel they are more attractive if they wear something on their heads. Hmm. Uh, I don't Don't, know what that is about, but you know.
0: (laughs) I mean, if you'll forgive my asking, do you wear a headscarf when you find yourself? No, I never
1: did. I never did.
0: You never did? Okay. No. And that's not problematic in any way for you?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. I was was at an exhibition uh, two days ago,
3: Hmm.
1: and uh, it was uh, an exhibition of women calligraphers, and all the girls were there. They were wearing scarves and everything. But, I mean, it was like they fell in love with me. They wanted to take uh, pictures with me. Every one of them would grab me, come here, and we would have a selfie together. They were absolutely adorable. I don't know. I think um, the, the veil is a misunderstanding of sorts. They just feel sexier because unless you're very interesting, why should you wear a veil? (laughs)
0: Well, yes, that's a good question. I mean, I was wondering, what do you think that Huda would have thought of these developments of um, sort of Saudi Arabian clerics and the revival of the idea of the veil?
1: She was very flexible, but she would have tried to help. Actually, I think she would have gotten all her money and given it to those people. I don't know. This was the the way she she functioned. Uh, That was her mechanism. You know, she actually said once that she couldn't sleep at night because she thought of, of the poor.
0: How do you think she would feel about the state of Egypt today?
1: The state of Egypt today is much better than a couple of years ago when we had this uh, Islamist regime on when churches were burnt, when Christians were uh, sadly killed, where lovers were caught in the streets and murdered. Uh dreadful things happened in some of the cities, especially middle to upper Egypt.
0: But it's improving now do you, in the last couple of years, you were saying?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Well, that's good news.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, Sania, thank you so much for your time today and for telling us uh, and telling me all about your grandmother. I feel pleasure. like I know much more about her now than I did when I, we started this conversation. I hope to,
1: conversation. to see you live one of these days.
0: I would love that. Tanya, if it's okay with you, I'm going to pick up my guitar and get ready to to sing some music. And in fact, you know, it's a guitar that was built in 1946. So it is a guitar that would have been around very briefly when Huda was still uh, alive. This is the song that I wrote for Huda Sha'arawi, and it's called The Lioness, and it goes a little something like this.
2: times are hard for honest men but she didn't give a damn because she wasn't one of them i don't mean to imply that she ever told a lie but she was raised in the harem and told to keep quiet
3: she isn't gonna hide her face anymore she isn't gonna know her place anymore married off young
2: Set aside who'd her always burn bright. She wasn't one to hide. She taught herself languages and poetry. She taught herself to speak so she could set herself free. Look on her work, see mighty men. She opened up the harm, they can't close it up again. She stepped off a legend, let herself fall free. She stepped off a train and into history. lioness, name a heart well fed, eyes aflame, a face uncovered showing what she overcame. Hooter is the
3: lioness; she won't be tamed. She isn't gonna.
0: I'd like to thank Sanya for that wonderful conversation. It was so great to talk to somebody so closely involved in the life of one of the people that I've actually chosen to write about. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can, of course, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And if you do that, I will appreciate it hugely as it helps spread the word about what we're doing here. You can find the song The Lioness wherever it is you get your music from because the album No Man's Land is out now. The next episode of the podcast is about my song Rescue Annie and the mysterious tale of a young woman who drowned in the River Seine. I'd like to thank my producer Haley Clark, the executive producer Peggy Sutton, and the additional producers Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Mile Recordings and something else.